So good morning, everybody. We are continuing. Good morning. We are continuing um, our walk through our statement of faith, our swalk, um, uh, and just talking about what we as elders in this church uh, hold to concerning core Christian doctrine, um, so that we as a body of believers will be able to bring better bring glory to God, being unified in the things of him, and protected from the deceptions of the enemy, who is Satan. And our statement of faith is basically a brief explanation of the foundation of what we believe um, and is the, the, at the core of everything we teach. So we can talk about a lot of different things, but everything comes back down to this core of what we believe. Um, in part one, we talked about, if you remember, a couple times ago when I teached, we talked about the Word of God as our foundation of truth and our supreme authority regarding faith and practice. We talked about sola scriptura. I got my appropriate shirt on of the five solas. We're going to talk about those again today. Um, in part two, we looked at the attributes of God. And we talked about how God is in control of all things that come to pass uh, and all things that have been decreed by him for his good purpose, good things and bad things all working together for his glory. Uh, we talked about how God knows all things and doesn't he doesn't change his mind or go back on his promises. And we also talked about last time the triune nature uh, of God, that, that he is one in being, and but three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But today, in our statement of faith, we're moving down to talk about the nature of man and the redemption of man. Um, we're going to talk about the nature of our severed relationship with our Creator. But in light of that, we're also going to talk about how we are reconciled to God and brought into eternal salvation. So today we are talking about rebellion, regeneration, and redemption. Okay? So three R's. <laughs> R, 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 R. So uh, why do we need to hear these things? Well, because in our fallen state, in our sin nature, we can easily... Take God's grace for granted. Um, often we can have a very diminished view of God's grace. And, and, and frankly, we can have a wrong view of exactly how we came to faith in Christ. So with that, let me read the next section of our statement of faith. If you have your Telegram app, I, I posted a link there to the section. And we're going to be talking about uh, the nature of man. It's down a little bit. but uh, Or you can just listen and I'll read it. It says, we believe that man was created in the image of God. Adam, the first man, rebelled against God and sinned. And as a result, all of creation entered into a fallen state wherein death and suffering exist. This also resulted in mankind being born spiritually dead, totally unwilling and indeed incapable of seeking after God. And due to original sin, all are born into condemnation and live under the impending wrath of the holy God for their sin in Adam. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Um, so the first statement in this section talks about how man was created in the image of God. And have you ever asked yourself, what does that mean? What, what, what is that all about? Well, let's go to that first passage. If you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at what Scripture says about being made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So being in the, made in the image of God um, after his likeness, we may tend to think that that's speaking of us looking like God or God looking like us, but that's not what this is talking about. Uh, and we know that by scripture. John 4, 24 says God is spirit. However, we are physical beings. In Philippians 2, 6 and 7, it says that Jesus was in the form of God, but had to take on the likeness of man in a physical sense. So a change had to take place when Christ took on human form. Therefore, when God says that we are made in his image, he is not referring to our physical appearance, but contextually the statement is referring to the delegated authority that God has given to man on earth to have dominion, to, ha to rule over his creation, to be his representatives on earth in how we live as stewards of his creation, nothing more, nothing less. We are to um, lead creation in bringing glory to God. I've heard many pastors and teachers take this text and add all kinds of things onto it. Uh, things that are just not said in scripture. And, and so we need to be careful of that because that's what's called eisegesis, where we add to the text something that's not there. So the point behind the statement is that mankind is made in the image of God is simple. We are called again to lead all of creation in bringing glory to God as his authoritative representatives on earth. That is our purpose. And the Westminster Statement of Faith talks about that, that our purpose is to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. That's the meaning of life. <laughs> um, Adam, however, the very first man, quickly failed to walk in this calling and knowingly disobeyed God. He knowingly disobeyed God when he went along with his wife and ate from the forbidden tree, if you remember. And this is where the rebellion of man began uh, with the very first man, Adam. But we need to understand that Adam was the best man that any of us could be. He had no sin nature. Unlike us, where we are born with a sin nature, we all naturally gravitate toward sinfulness because of our fallen nature. But Adam had no such tendency when he was, he was created. He also lived in a perfect, unfallen environment. He lived in paradise. You look out there, we don't really live in paradise, okay? Uh, there was no death, there was no sickness, there was no suffering when Adam was created. He was created in perfect relationship with God. Um, he had the best-looking chick on the planet. <laughs> um, he, he had the best job, naming animals and tending to a garden that had no weeds. <laughs> um, but in Adam's free will, he chose to submit to his, his wife's error rather than submit to God. God credited Adam with the fall of mankind. He didn't credit Eve with the fall of mankind, even though she ate from the tree first. God held Adam accountable because Adam was called to lead his wife, but he chose instead to submit to her and disobey, to, and disobey God. And so you see there why radical feminism and this rebellion against the, a, a, a patriarchal society is utterly satanic. It goes back to the original sin. It is a direct attack against God's created order. Adam got woke. Creation got broke. Very simple. Um, 
Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam in his free will, um, Adam and his free will are to blame for our fallen world. Now, the church and, and much of society today has really made an idol out of this thing we call free will, whatever it is. I mean, I hear pastors claim that without free will, we can't have love. But scripture says that God is love. And without God, there is no love. Scripture does not say without free will, there is no love. Adam in his free will failed. Think about this. Adam in his free will failed to love his wife and failed to love God. But before we blame Adam for all this evil in the world, um, know that all of us in his position would have done the same thing. That's what Paul is inferring when he said in Romans 5.12, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all were in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. Because we would have done no better in his shoes. He was the best we could be. He, he, he was what theologians call our federal head. Uh, he was the prototype man. He was our representative on earth. He had perfect free will. He lived in perfect utopia, but look at where his freedom in paradise led him. Into bondage. Bondage to sin. Think about that. Everyone wants to go to heaven. Everyone wants to be free in paradise. But Adam and Eve had that in the garden. Um, heaven is not about us. It's not about our freedom. It's not about the wonderful environment we're going to be in. It's all about God. It must be about God. Because without God, there is no freedom. There is no paradise. Only slavery, death, and suffering. And that's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And that's the lesson that has been being taught to us by God over and over again over these past 6,000 years. Anyway, as a result of Adam's fall, man became spiritually dead. Okay? That's an important term. He became spiritually dead, wherein we, as a result, inherited a sin nature that we are born enslaved to. Our free will that we would have had if there was no sin uh, was replaced by a bondage to sin, a slavery to sin. Because of our, our spiritual death, our enslavement and our enslavement uh, to our sin nature, all people are born totally unwilling and therefore incapable of seeking after the true and living God in and of themselves. I'll say that again. Because of our sin nature that we are born into, all mankind are born totally unwilling and therefore incapable of seeking after God in and of themselves. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 testifies to this. And you, speaking of the, the church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, what did Paul mean? when he said to the Ephesian church and to us that we were 
dead in sin. Well, he meant that they were spiritually dead, living in and living for sin until a point in, in their, their life where they became born again of the Holy Spirit of God. And due to original sin, as I said, all are born into condemnation and live under the impending wrath of the Holy God for their sin. And when theologians use the term original sin, they're not just referring to that first sin that Adam and Eve committed uh, in the garden. They are instead referring to the sin nature. That's what original sin is talking about. It's referring to the sin nature that all mankind has inherited as a result of what happened in the garden. Psalm 51.5 says, David here talking, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? Now, David, in this, the context of this passage, he's not saying that he was conceived in some kind of sinful relationship that his mother was having. No, the entire context of Psalm 51 is about David's sin nature from his birth, not a sin committed by his mother. It was speaking of the total depravity of man, wherein man, in his flesh, longs for sin from birth. We naturally gravitate towards sin. And man desires nothing of the things of God in and of ourselves prior to us being born again of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that has, is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what Paul said. In our fallen, spiritually dead state, we are 100% in the flesh because we are born spiritually dead and therefore we can't please God. And in that state, it, it, Paul even said, it is impossible to please God. So remember, how do we please God according to Scripture? Well, we, don't, we can only please God through faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Speaking of God. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Turn to Hebrews 11.6. I want to look at this passage a little bit. Just so we understand what it's saying. Hebrews 11.6. Remember, this is a letter written to the Jews. Um, let me re repeat it again. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, in order to please God, you must first have faith. In fact, this says that whoever would seek God must first have faith, must first believe. Many pastors teach that you have to seek God first, and then he gives you savings faith. But, okay, so just step away from that. So doesn't Hebrews 11.6 then say, all we need to do is believe God exists, and then we are able to seek God? Is there, is there a difference between having savings faith? Is, is Hebrews 6 referring to having savings faith, or is Hebrews 6 just saying, you just got to believe God exists? Um, and then you're able to seek him. Well, that is what most of today's evangelical church teaches, but scripture 
specifically says that no one seeks God prior to being born again. Romans 3, 9 through 12 establishes this. It says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul there was talking to the Jews. Jews who believed God existed. <laughs> they had an intellectual understanding that God was real. But this passage is saying that none of them, while still under sin, sought after God. And all people are born under sin. Therefore, no one seeks God on their own prior to us being born again of the Spirit. So if no one seeks God, then how do we reconcile this with what Hebrews 11.6 that says that God rewards those who seek him? Well, those who seek God are those whom God has already caused to be born of his spirit, regenerated and drawn by God. These are those who are chosen by God, by his sovereign grace and his sovereign will to be his elect. You know, just as he chose Israel to be his elect nation in the Old Testament, God chooses individuals to be his people, his elect people in the New Testament. Again, for a person to seek God, he or, he or she must first have Holy Spirit-given faith, according to Hebrews 11.6. Not just an ambiguous intellectual belief in God. James 2.19 refutes that too. It's a, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you see, it's not just an ambiguous intellectual understanding of God's existence. Um, so acknowledging that, uh, that God exists does not constitute an ability or a desire to seek God, let alone please him. So when Hebrews 6, Hebrews 11.6 talks about believing God exists, it is speaking of a God-given savings faith in the God of Scripture. And this kind of faith cannot be attained by a spiritually dead person that's in the flesh, a person who is under sin and still ruled by the flesh. Savings faith is 100% the gift of God. Turn to Ephesians 2, verse 8. I think I quote this passage in every one of my sermons. <laughs> so you should have it earmarked. <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite passages. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is not your own doing. That means faith and salvation are not things that we ascend to ourselves in any way, shape, or form. God fully grants both of those things by grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. Now, some may try to object to that and say uh, the gift that God gives, which is not our own doing, it's, that's salvation. But we have to believe on our own in some sense. That's what a lot of people teach. However, when we look at this phrase, the and this, the and of this in this passage includes both faith and salvation, not just salvation. 
This is established clearly by the Greek grammar. Because the and this in verse 8 in the Greek is in the neuter form. Whereas nothing that came before it is in the neuter form. Faith is in the feminine form and have been saved is in the masculine form. So the neuter demonstrative pronoun this in the phrase, uh, this is not your own doing, is referring entirely to the preceding phrase, the preceding clause, which is talking about salvation, faith, being all being part of the gift that God gives us in this passage. Savings faith is not something that we come to in and of ourselves. Now, some will say, yes, faith is a gift that God gives us, but like any other gift, we must receive that gift. Okay? And those who say that usually assert that God then offers this gift of faith to all people, but only some receive the gift. Okay? Okay, we'll grant you that and go from there and think this through. So why then do only some people choose to receive the gift while an overwhelming majority of other people reject the gift of faith? Are the people that accept the gift of savings faith, are they somehow smarter than the rest of them? Not necessarily, because if you look at the intellect of Christians, on a broad, it's on a broad scope, ranging from the very simple to the very intellectual, brilliant people. So is it because... Those who receive the gift are more moral or have been brought up in a more moral environment? No, those who have the gift of savings faith range from people who have been brought up in very faithful religious families to those who have been lifelong criminals. Okay? So the question of why some receive the gift of savings faith and most don't is really just an irrelevant question. Because as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 specifically says, let me read it a second time, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, if salvation, if our salvation depends upon us receiving the gift of faith, then our salvation is at least partly our own doing. And, and, I, and if that was the case, then I would be able to boast over those who reject the gift. Okay? Because there would be, have to be something better in me that enabled me to choose to receive the gift of faith over the person that doesn't. Also, the act of receiving that gift of faith that God offers would actually require a certain degree of faith to make that choice. So where does that faith come from? <laughs> anyway, you look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it, affir it affirms the monergism, okay? That's a technical theological term. Monergism means that our salvation is 100% the work of God. Our salvation does not depend upon us cooperating with God and choosing to accept him. That's called synergism, okay? And we had nothing to do with ourselves being born physically. Our parents just conceived and gave birth to us, okay? Nor do we have anything to do with us being born spiritually. It was completely God's work and God's choice. A choice that he works in us by his Holy Spirit. Okay, he, does, he, he causes, from our perspective, we made a choice, but it was him that worked in us to make that choice. 
And we never know who God has chosen to save, who God is working in to make this choice. As Jesus said in John 3, 6 through 7, he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that is clearly talking about, about what God is doing in causing people to be born of the Spirit. He is moving among the people, causing people to come unto him. It's not about what man does. It's what, he, what he's doing. And that is why we are called to preach the gospel to everyone, because we don't know who God is going to save. They don't have a, a sticker on their head saying, that's the elect and that's not. <laughs> no, God calls us to go and proclaim the gospel to everyone, and he will use that message to draw out his elect. And God, by his grace and for his sovereign purpose, chooses a person and saves them through regenerating their dead spiritual heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 talks about this. Ezekiel 36, 26. If you don't have this passage earmarked in your Bible, earmark it. <laughs> it says, and I will give you, and God is speaking here, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So from our perspective, you know, from our view, after God regenerates our heart, we then seek him. And we make a choice to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But it was actually God doing that work in us the whole time through his spiritual heart surgery. Turn to John 6.44 and hear the words of Jesus. John 6.44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice Jesus said, no one can come to me. No one is able to come to Christ out of his or her own free will. Again, prior to being born again from above, your will is in bondage to sin, spiritually dead. And John 6, 44 establishes the doctrine of what we call total depravity in that we had no desire or ability to come unto Christ on our own. We had to be drawn by God. And most people who believe that we have to make a choice to receive the gift of faith will say, we'll have no problem with the idea of God drawing us. Because they generally believe that when God draws us, he's just trying to woo people to come unto him. Okay? And that's how he draws people. He's trying to in, in, inspire people and influence people to make a choice for him. But when God draws someone to himself, it's more like him drawing a sword from a sheath or a bucket of water from a well. He draws efficaciously, effectively. It's not like me trying to call my dog who's running away chasing squirrels in the yard and I stand like an idiot there shouting, Baron, Baron, come here. I'm trying to draw him to me and he ignores me. That's not what God is like when he's drawing his elect unto himself. 
he draws effectively and efficaciously those he intends to save. And this view wherein God is just trying to woo people to himself becomes fatally inconsistent when we read the second part of this verse in John 6.44. It says, And I will raise him up on the last day. Contextually, this term is speaking of those who will be raised to eternal life. Okay? Those he raises up are those who will be saved. So who is the him in John 6, 44, that God will raise to eternal life? Well, contextually and grammatically, it is the person who God draws unto Christ. That means all whom God draws will be raised to eternal life. All whom God draws will be saved. And this is important for us to see. There is no distinction made in this passage or anywhere in the Bible that there will be people drawn by God who do not come to Christ. All whom God draws comes unto Christ. Therefore, if God is trying to just, if he is just trying to draw people to salvation and just trying to draw all people to salvation, as many Christians teach to this day, then this passage is saying that people will be raised, this passage is saying that all people will be raised to eternal life. Which means that no one goes to hell. <laughs> which means that we should all be part of the universalist church. Which means we should just start waving our rainbow flags. But we know that that cannot be the case. Because the Bible says that many will be condemned for their sin. So the brother or sister in Christ who believes that we are responsible for our own salvation by accepting the gift of faith, they may then respond by saying, no, God's drawing of a person only makes it possible for a person to come to Christ. But God raises up those to salvation who make their own choice to accept Jesus Christ prior to them being born again. And that has become the most common teaching on how we become saved in most of evangelicalism today. God only makes salvation possible, but we must complete the work. However, that wasn't what the early church taught. It wasn't what the reformers taught, nor is it what the Bible teaches. Nowhere in this passage in John 6 does it say that God is trying to draw everyone, but only some come and are raised up. You have to add that concept to the passage to make such an assertion. And by adding to the text in that way, it, it really, it makes God a massive failure. I mean, if God's will is to save every single person that's ever lived, but most reject him, then God's will is not being accomplished. And what did we talk about last time when I talked about the attributes of God and his sovereignty? Ephesians 1.11 says, In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means God is, is accomplishes all of his will. If God wills to save all people, and he is trying to save all people, but only some come to him, then this verse is a major contradiction. And therefore God is not sovereign. And we know that's not true. But also, the assertion that our salvation depends upon our own will prior to, be, prior to being born again, this contradicts many other passages in Scripture as well. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, 
who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So according to this passage, my salvation is not at all dependent upon my so-called free will choice, but upon God's free will choice. The choice I make for Christ is the result of God choosing me. Yes, at salvation, we, we, we choose to receive Christ, but only because God has given us a new spiritual heart, as we looked at in Ezekiel 36. And everyone who receives this new spiritual heart chooses Christ because Christ is irresistible to the new, newly regenerated heart. Similarly, similarly, let's look at Romans chapter 9. Turn there if you will. <clears throat> In verses 6 through, church, 6 through 13 in Romans 9, Paul makes the point of how God chose Jacob over Esau, not based on anything they did or did not do, but on the basis of God's purpose and election. That's what then Paul goes on to say in verse 14. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, God's mercy, and therefore our salvation, is never dependent upon something we do or our will, but only on what God did, only on his will. We don't earn mercy. God doesn't owe us mercy because we did something or made a choice in and of ourselves. Grace, again, is God's undeserved favor. And it is by grace that we are saved through the gift of faith, as Ephesians 2.8 says. Therefore, if God's grace is enacted by a choice we make in and of ourselves, then we did something to deserve his favor. And in that case, grace ceases being grace. And salvation becomes something that God owes us because we made the choice to accept it. And that is not what is taught by the apostles. It's not what is taught by Jesus in the New Testament. Listen to Jesus' words to his apostles in John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Not only did he choose him, and then it says, and, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit, should, uh, uh, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Anyway, the point I'm making here from our statement of faith is that mankind is totally depraved enslaved to our sin nature, spiritually dead, unwilling and indeed incapable of coming to Christ before being born again of God. And this is the bad news that causes the God, newly God-regenerated heart to so desire the good news, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the regenerated, born-again heart, Christ is irresistible. And if Christ is rejected by that heart, then that heart has not been regenerated. That heart is not born again. And that brings us to our next section of our statement of faith regarding man and our salvation. Let me read it. It says, We believe God from eternity past, having foreordained all things, joined a certain people of his choosing to Christ Jesus, 
so that he might redeem them from their sin and in so doing bring glory to himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, he was willingly obedient unto death and as he died on the cross to atone for the sins of the faithful. He died in the place of his elect people, providing full and complete forgiveness of sins by his death upon the cross of Calvary. Now the third day after his death, Jesus was resurrected and a new and glorified body, was resurrected with a new and glorified body, proving that he had conquered sin and death, and he appeared to and interacted with his apostles and around 500 witnesses 40 days after his resurrection. Jesus ascended to heaven as testified to his apostles and an angel told them that he would return. So if you remember in parts one and two that I taught last time, I began with talking about the, the five solas, okay? We covered sola scriptura, and then in the second part, we talked about the attributes of God. We talked about soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. In our doctrine of salvation, we see the other three solas come into play in relation to how we are saved. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are saved by sola gratia, grace alone, through faith alone, soli, fe, soli fide, in Christ alone, soli Christos. Those are the other three solas. So turn to Romans 8, 29 through 30. And we're going to see what's called, what is the order of God's salvation to us. or also called in Latin the ordo salutis. <clears throat> Romans 8, 29 through 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God, or to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this passage, again, is, we call it the Order Salutis. It's also called the golden chain of redemption. But first, let, let's notice God's foreknowledge here. When it talks about God's foreknowledge, it's not talking about a foreknowledge of what we will do or a choice that we make. Some will use this passage to claim that God predestines the saved people based um, upon their, his foreknowledge of them making a choice for Christ. But God's foreknowledge in, the, in this passage is not referring to an action that individuals do. The foreknowledge is referring to persons, actual persons, okay? Those whom he chooses to conform into the image of his son. There's nothing here that hinders upon my choice or, or a choice that we must make. Rather, Paul the Apostle gives us a chronology of our salvation. God predestines and elect people. He calls them and then he justifies them through faith. And then he glorifies those whom he has chosen. So God makes an internal call through the proclamation of the gospel to those whom he has chosen to redeem. And what I mean by an internal call is that God draws his elect people by their newly regenerated heart. He grants uh, his chosen savings faith and then justifies them in Christ alone. And we know we are among God's chosen people through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ that he has given to us. God's word went out to call a particular people to salvation. And his word 
never fails to achieve what he sent it out to do. And this is so important. God sends out his word to achieve a purpose. Isaiah 55, 11. God said, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so God doesn't send out his word hoping that people will receive it and believe it. No, his call, the sending forth of his word, is 100% efficacious in calling those whom he intends to save to come to Christ. Yes, many hear the gospel and do not come, but God's word is not failing in those cases because it wasn't God's will to, to save those people through his, through his word but that they would receive the just judgment for their sin in their rejection of him. If God did send out his word to save all people, his word would then be returning void in most cases. And therefore, Isaiah 55, 11 would not be true. And this is a hard word for us because we've all, we all have loved ones that we hope will one day be saved. But we just don't know. Okay, we don't know uh, if they will be or won't be. We don't know if God has chosen them or not. So in that, we don't stop praying for them. We don't stop sharing the gospel with them because God may use those things to accomplish his will. And this should cause, you, should cause us to be ever more humble, ever more in awe that God personally sent out his word to save you. Our salvation is personal. The gospel is personal to each one of us. If salvation relies on our own choice prior to regeneration, if God just potentially saves people by, the, by sending out his word, then we don't have a personal savior. It would be us accepting God instead of God accepting us. But what about all the people that hear the gospel that, that are not chosen. What, what about them? Well, God, Jesus mentions them. In Matthew twenty two fourteen. he said, for many are called, but few are chosen. The calling being described in this passage is not the internal call of God that calls the regenerated born-again heart. It is the general call that the church puts forth in the proclamation of the gospel, of which we proclaim to all people because we don't know who God's elect are, but only God's chosen hear it and have been given ears to hear. They are, God's chosen are the only ones that recognize the voice of their shepherd and respond. And in this parable, it says that they are given the wedding garments of salvation by faith. Some of those that God has not elected to salvation may even respond to the general call that the church puts out. And for various reasons, they'll come to church, they'll sit in the pews, but they do not have genuine savings faith in Christ, and the sinfulness of their lives will testify to that. That is generally what we are seeing, especially today. We've seen this movement of Christians deconstructing their faith and walking away from Christ for the rest of their lives. They did not receive the internal call of God. They, were, they heard the general call. They are not among, or, or, and they are among the false converts that Jesus describes in Matthew seven twenty one. 
He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a tough verse. And those who live to do the will of the Father, it talked about those who are living to do the will of the Father, those are those whom God has granted savings faith to. The gift of savings faith that we have can be defined. It is defined by the testimony of the Holy of Holy Scripture. And that we believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, he willingly submitted to the Father and died on a cross. He died in place of a chosen people, providing full and complete forgiveness of sins by his death upon the cross. Forgiveness to people from every nation of the world, not just the Jews, who were the chosen people of the Old Covenant. 1 John 2, 2 says that he is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John here, we need to understand the context. John, in 1 John, he is contextually addressing Jews in this epistle. And he was saying to them that Jesus came not just to save Jews, but people from all over the world, from every nation. Not every single person that lives in the world, but people from every nation. Um... This is not saying that Jesus potentially died to save, to potentially save, okay? Anyway, on the third day after his death, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was resurrected with a new and glorified body, proving that he had conquered sin and death for us. And we believe that no other work can provide for the, for the forgiveness of our sins, and no addition can be made to the finished work of Christ. If we must do something in and of ourselves to cause ourselves to be saved, then Christ's work is not finished. We would have to add to his work to be saved. Some contend that we must add to the work of Christ with our own works in order to be saved. There are many major denominations that preach this. And they will, look, they will quote scripture out of context to defend this idea that you have to add your works to Christ's work to be saved. And they'll quote James 2.24. You see that a person is not justified by works and not, or a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me read that again. James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But you have to read James 2.24 in context with James 2.18 to understand what it's talking about. James 2.18, a few verses earlier, says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from, my, from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James was never advocating that faith plus works saves us. He was saying that true faith will produce good works as a sign to other people that your God-given faith is genuine. Works are the evidence of genuine faith, and genuine faith is evidence of, the whole, of a Holy Spirit-indwelled person, showing that person to be among God's elect. 
So, I've said a lot about uh, regeneration and redemption. And some, some of you may not fully agree with or understand all the things that I've said regarding these doctrines, otherwise known as Calvinism, for lack of a better term. Um, like many of you, when I became a Christian, I was taught that I made a free will choice that enacted my salvation. I was taught that I was born again after I accepted Christ. I was taught that being born again was the result of my own choice for Christ and not the cause of my choice for Christ. And I had a wrong view of what grace is. I had a greatly diminished view of grace. And it took me 13 years to realize and accept the fact that Scripture does not teach what I believed concerning my salvation. My belief was man-centered and synergistic. Scripture teaches that my salvation is God-centered and monergistic. Scripture plainly teaches that I chose Christ because God first chose me and caused me to be born again by his grace. Now, the reason that I rejected this plain teaching in Scripture for 13 years was because I refused to accept the fact that God only chooses to save some people and leaves the majority of other people in their sin and condemned. Part of me still believed that I deserved to be saved and that people don't really deserve hell for their sin. I thought that God owed everyone a second chance to be saved. I was wrong. God owes nobody mercy. God owes nobody anything except his wrath because that's what we've purchased with our sin. We are outright rebels and we need to have an understanding of the depth of our sin before a holy God. I outright, in my rejection of these doctrines, I outright avoided dealing with certain part portions of scripture, especially Romans 9, where Paul literally addressed this argument that I was making when I rejected the fact that God chooses to save some and not others. Turn back to Romans 9 if you're not there. I just want to read verses 19 through 23. It says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? God is clearly saying through Paul that those that are not among his elect, he uses as vessels of wrath, as a sign of how merciful he is to those whom he has chosen to save by grace. Now, I came to terms with the fact that when I called the Calvinistic God a monster for choosing to save some and not others, I was arguing not just with John Calvin, but with Paul the Apostle. I was rejecting the word of the one true living God of the Bible. 
I operated on a presupposition that God desires to save every single person that's ever lived, but for whatever reason, he couldn't. I believed that man's free will trumped God's will and that God would never violate man's free will because God is a gentleman. I actually heard pastors teach that. God is a gentleman and he will let me burn in eternity in hell before he violates my free will. At the same time, I believe that God didn't want anyone to perish in hell. So the contradiction there. Um, we, I believe that God would never alter someone's free will, even though there are many examples of God doing just that in Scripture. In fact, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So despite that inconsistency that I had, I still had my go-to scriptures to defend my view um, against the evil Calvinist view. 2 Peter 3.9, I would always go to this one. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I read that as saying that God wants to save every single person who has ever lived, and but I never took into consideration the context of the verse. Peter was talking to the church about God's elect people who had yet to come to Christ. He was talking about all future Christians that God had in mind to save. He was talking about you and me, which is why Peter is telling the church to be patient regarding Christ's second coming. He was in no way saying that God desires to save every single person that has ever lived, because again, if that was the case, we would have to be universalists because God achieves his will. So if God wants to save every single person, that means every single person is going to be saved. But you may be thinking, what about the verse that says that God desires to save all people to be saved? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he lists those kinds of people. For kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So doesn't this plainly refute the idea that God only desires to save some people? Because it says he desires to save all people. Well, no, again, we got to look at the context. And first, in, the, in, the, in this passage in 1 Timothy 2, actually teaches that God desires to save all kinds of people, not every person who has ever lived. Because the context mentions kinds of people when he talks about kings and all who are in high positions. Paul was making a specific point here. You see, in context, the church was being greatly persecuted in that time by those in power, those in authority, such as kings. And the church was naturally growing in their hatred for those in power. Christians in the first century were experiencing great persecution. And Paul was making the statement in 1 Timothy 2 that God even desires to save some of those wicked people that are persecuting you, who were and Paul would know because he was one of those men in high positions that persecuted the church before he got saved. Paul mentions the fact, that fact 
only 12 verses earlier in 1 Timothy 1.13, further establishing the meaning of what he would say in chapter 2, verse 4. So when Paul says God desires to save all people in, in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 4, he is clearly saying all kinds of people. Because again, if he is referring to every person who has ever lived, we must be universalists. <laughs> and that's not true. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes will be saved. Doesn't that mean God made salvation possible for all? Well, when, again, when we look at the actual Greek grammar, essentially all it says is all the believing ones will be saved. It doesn't say anything about God making salvation possible for all people. It just says that God loved the world and expressed that love by redeeming a people to himself from the world, a people who would be identified by the faith that God had given them. So what's the point of all this as I run out of time? The point is that we need to have a better understanding of the scope of God's grace, an undiminished appreciation of grace. My love for God has grown abundantly since I came to understand and believe these doctrines of grace that are established in Scripture. Since I've come to realize that the total depravity of my nature, I have nothing to boast in. And the amazing grace of God and Him dying for me and then reaching down personally to draw me unto Himself through the gift of faith. I can't boast in anything but only in God's mercy and grace. And when we grasp this truth... The assurance of our salvation is strengthened exponentially. Because if my salvation is dependent upon my own free will choice, then I can one day choose to walk away from Christ. But if it relies on God's will, I am secure in knowing that he will complete the work that he has begun. Because that's what he says. And we'll end here. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God is going to finish the work in us, that work that he begun, he began. How comforting is that? Because I screw up every day. Every day I sin and get so easily slip into that mindset that I can't be saved because I still get entangled in my sin. But Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. He will perfect my faith even if my faith seems so weak right now. And that is so gloriously comforting and causes me and should cause all of us to rejoice in him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for that amazing grace, Lord, that you have shown us. And Lord, forgive us for having such a, a small view of your holiness and a large view of our own self-righteousness. But Lord, we, are, we recognize, Lord, that by your word we are totally depraved. We were totally spiritually dead. We were drowned and dead at the bottom of the sea and you dove in and pulled us out and breathed new life into us. And you continue that work of changing us from within. Lord, 
molding us and shaping us, Lord, into the image of Christ, that we would bring you glory. So we pray you would continue that work and thank you, Lord, that you will perfect that work. Be glorified and magnified in our heart as we continue with our time of worship and remembrance of the work that you did, that you finished on that cross of Calvary, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.